The departure of both WhatsApp founders from Facebook, which bought the company for around $19 billion, had to do with user rights, and in a broader view, digital rights. Jan Kuhn left earlier this year over disagreements with Facebook, which attempted to use users' personal data and weaken the app's encryption. A few months earlier, in late 2017, Brian Acton announced leaving WhatsApp to form a new foundation, which he revealed in early 2018 to be the Signal Foundation, which took over the development of the eponymous privacy-oriented chat app and protocol, as well as other privacy-oriented tools. As technology infiltrates more aspects of our daily lives, digital rights are becoming the new human rights, and we're experiencing a flood of organizations dealing with digital rights. What do they do? My name is Efra Daskal. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Northwestern University and at the Cyber Center here at the Hebrew University. My research deals with digital rights activism, which means that I'm looking at how different organizations around the world advocate for digital rights. When we are talking about digital rights, it is basically a fancy name to human rights in the digital age. Is it inherently different because, let's say, surveillance is much more effective than And when it's done through face recognition than it was when a cop had to identify you in the crowd? I would say that when we are talking about the digital age, the same rights have gone through some sort of transformation. The boundaries of these rights, the meaning of these rights have changed over the years, right? But we are still talking about the same human rights as we did before the digital age. So there are no new rights uh, in your perception? So that's a great question because... There is a trend now to talk about the first generation of rights, and there is a trend to talk about the second generation of rights. But unlike the second generation, the first generation is still in consensus. Everybody agrees about it. About the second generation, we still have disagreements and we still have arguments. And so the first generation, we are talking about access to the Internet and access in, to the Internet in the broadest possible sense, right? Which, which means access to technology, access to content, And even it includes a net neutrality, right? The right to surf the web freely. Second, we have the right to privacy, right? Again, something which belongs to the first generation. And here in this, within, the, within this right to privacy, we also include the right to security, the right to anonymity, right? And then we have the third group, which is freedom of speech and freedom of creation. And so all of these rights belong to the first generation of rights. When we start talking about the second generation of rights, well, here you find different opinions. But so far, we can talk at least about the right to reliable information, which links us to the social media companies and the role in providing information to the public and in constructing the informational environment in which we are living. And the second controversial right may be the right to be forgotten, right, or the right not to be indexed. The, no matter how you frame it, it is the right that we have as people individuals to control the, our image online and to construct our image online. And control of information about ourselves is, in a sense, privacy. True. But this is a different aspect of privacy, right? And this is why it is still a controversial right to begin with, and it's still something which belongs to the second generation. What makes the second generation of rights unique is the fact that these generations are linked to To the information society to the digital age right it is because of the digital age these rights were suddenly created these rights are a topic for a conversation and there are new actors the social media companies the media um, tech companies the companies that give us email web surfing social media <laughs> online dating they all have information 
that didn't used to be available and easily propagated to third-party companies. Exactly. So one of the characteristics of the digital age, I would say, is the fact that today we are dealing with multiple social actors, right? We're not just talking about one government, about one internet service providers. We are talking about governments and we're talking about international community institutions and we're talking about intergovernmental institutions and social media companies and civil society organizations. So basically... We're and about ourselves because we exactly. have a lot more powers to keep our privacy should we decide to use them exactly we're also talking about individual users right who suddenly have today more power than they used to have in the past like the right to be forgotten was an initiative of a single user of a single human being saying hey i don't i don't agree with these conditions i want to change something right so in a or way, even using in- encryption or turning exactly. off uh, permissions on uh, cellular phones for application true true but that also means that we as citizens need to be aware I mean, we, we need to have the right knowledge and write information we need to be literated right and so and we need the tools and we need the tools exactly and we need guidance how to use the tools as well and so in many ways even though today people might feel they are more vulnerable it's only a matter of perception right because in any given point you can take back the power you can you know own own the day on the night but yeah. you cannot take back the information well that depends you know to some extent you can take back the information but you Again, it's up to your knowledge and up to your own literacy skills because at some level you can control the information. You can use uh, encryption, you can use anonymous surfing, you can install different browsers which will prevent uh, spying from commercial companies and from governments as well. And then Yahoo and Equifax and all those companies leak information that were supposed to be confidential and kept safely. True, true. And not just that, you can also have the U.S. government asking information from all of those internet companies, right? So we are talking about the push and pull. We are talking about a constant fight between, I would say, governments and internet companies on the one hand and the individual users on the other hand. But the thing is, we have to believe that we have the power because otherwise we might as well just surrender, right? So come on. So tell us about the new wave of civil rights and human rights organizations. Okay, so this is a very cool wave, right? And so we are talking about organizations all around the world that advocate for digital rights. And so we are talking about international organizations like Privacy International or Article 19. And we talk about national organizations such the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a US-based organization. We even have an Israeli organization, the Israeli Digital Rights Movement. And we have a digital courage in Germany and um, uh, open rights group in the UK and Bites for All in Pakistan and uh, social media exchange, I think, in Lebanon. And we have different organizations all around the world advocating for digital rights. And so what's cool about these organizations that some of them operate from a very classic human rights perspective. Others operate from a very technological perspective, right? And their point of view is actually how to defend and to protect civil liberties and digital rights. And they are using all sorts of things. For example, we have their traditional, you know, trying to mobilize the public for demonstrations and for political campaigns online. So this is like the traditional advocacy efforts, right? But they also try to educate the public. 
Like, for example, in one of several organizations provide instructions how to install VPN. They even share recommendations about which suppliers you need to contact in order to install VPN. Others uh, educate people about encryption, how to use encryption. Others give uh, instructions about for journalists, for safety of journalists, for young people, for women. In Pakistan, they have this wonderful harassment online phone in which you can just call and complain and they provide you some assistance. They also manufacture some really cool stuff for you to use, like a special key holder that can also trace us whether the printer that you're using is following you or not. I'm not kidding. Printers can follow you around, just for you know. And providing stickers for your laptop cameras, providing special um, wallets for your credit cards, for your phone. And so they're really trying to reach out to people and educate them. And the interesting part about it, it, this is something that you would assume that the state would do, right? Because the state has this like responsibility. Yeah, but I don't think the state really wants us to use good encryption. Good. Great. Right. And this is where the civil society organizations come in place. They actually substitute the state in that sense. So not only do they provide you information about technological innovations, about political, you know, initiatives of politicians against civil liberties, but they're also trying to educate you, which the way I see it is great. And I would say even more than that, right? They're reaching out to people, they're teaching them. They have in some organization, they even organize local groups, local meetings. And while, you know, these are small groups, these are small local meetings, but it's a lot when it comes to making the citizens understand what are the risks, what are the problems, explaining to people about technology, which is really important because people are afraid of technology, right? They're hearing this weird stuff about surveillance and Facebook, and they don't know how to make sense of it. And these organizations actually can help them in making sense and in acquiring skills and literacy skills. So So do you think digital literacy is a human right? Okay. So this is not based on my research. This is my own personal opinion. Definitely, like three exclamation mark, definitely, right? I would say that digital literacy is the future. We need to educate people about technology, right? You cannot hide in your room and ignore technology. No, you have to face it. You have to understand it and you have to know how to work with it, right? Because come on, this is the future. And do you think that uh, what we need to teach people is to avoid specific technologies and use safer and better uh, solutions or like there's no real uh, replacement for Facebook, for example, you could say. So should we teach people not to use Facebook or to use Facebook, but really not divulge any information or just give up and let the lawmakers take care of uh, what should be done? Okay, first of all, the last option you just mentioned, let the lawmakers take care of it. I think after seeing the hearing of Zuckerberg, right, and realizing that the lawmakers have no idea when it comes to technology. Mr. Zuckerberg, I remember well your first visit to Capitol Hill back in 2010. You said back then that Facebook would always be free. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Exactly, right? Like, this was one of these moments in which, like... Senator, we run ads. Oh, my God. I see. Right? So, when it comes to the lawmakers, they are important. But in the state in which we are now, 
it will be very, very hard to rely on them to do something about it, right? And so you gave the example of Facebook, and this is a great example because every organization that I interviewed, I asked about Facebook and about social media. And I really liked their answer. They said, listen, everybody is on Facebook, right? We, you cannot erase your account from Facebook. You're missing way too much in terms of career opportunities, education opportunities, personal relationship opportunities. Come on. Being on Facebook, that means that you're being part of the world. But we can educate them about how to use Facebook and which information to share and to make sure to what apps they are subscribing, right? And to make sure there's that they will check their privacy settings every couple of months and they will be careful about the pictures that they upload and to make sure that they got everybody's permission before uploading a picture. Shutting yourself from technology is not the solution. Learning how to work with technology, that's the solution. Some of those organizations are traditional human rights ones who enter the digital field and others are newer, digital-oriented groups to begin with. Our next interviewee worked on both kinds. Paula Martins, I'm the director for Brazil and South America with Article 19. Just before I was working with another human rights organization called Human Rights Watch, and I also worked with the UN, always on human rights. So I have been working on human rights in general and for the past 10 years, specifically on freedom of expression and information. What does an Article 19 do? Article 19 is a human rights organization but we focus specifically on the protection of the right to freedom of information and freedom of expression. Okay, when you talk about freedom of expression, you are talking about the freedom to receive and impart information as well as the right to seek information. So that's the updated interpretation of freedom of expression. That's why today we talk about freedom of expression and information, because it protects the whole exchange of information, the whole communication of phenomena. So it's the idea that you can go after information from different sources, including information held by the government, for example, and then in part, create your own ideas, your, your own visions, your positions, including political vision, and then you can express that in different forms, through arts, through literature, through the media, and, for example, through the vote. So all of that is part of the exercise of the right to freedom of expression and information. They are two faces of the same rights. Okay, so you're uh, defined as a human rights uh, organization, am exactly. I correct? Yes. And where do human rights come into place in the connected world we live in? Today, we have some organizations that work on digital rights precisely, specifically. And they work on this new agenda. They work on cryptography and data, data protection. Uh, we are not one of these organizations. We are a more traditional organization. The basis for all our work is policy, is legal uh, interpretation of the rights that were secured through this international framework of human rights. But this framework has been impacted by by the digital agenda, by the expansion in the use of new technology, especially internet and today social media. So uh, we are one of those traditional organizations. We are a 30-year-old organization, but that had to reflect the changes in the context where we live because we don't do communication today as we used to. So that's why today we are uh, a human rights uh, organization that has... Uh, a lot of digital issues in its agenda. So what are uh, some of those issues that you're dealing with? Mm. We work a lot on access to the internet. So the idea that for people to exercise their human rights, today they need access to the internet. 
both to express themselves and get information from exactly, other people. Exactly, from other people and the government, for example. So a number of uh, initiatives concerning e-government, um, the provision of data in relation to public policies, initiatives of e-government and participation through the internet, all of those, uh, they are only possible if, you, if people have access to the internet. So we work a lot on access issues and the idea of universalization of access to the internet. You uh, perceive a connection to the internet as a human right? Um, as a um, means to exercise rights. It's mm -hmm. not a human right per se, uh, but it's a necessary tool for it. If the internet is a mean to practice your rights, what do you do regarding access to the internet, the access itself that is sometimes limited or uh, non-existent? So yes, uh, we work at the policy level. The idea is that uh, we would um, convince legislators and the government to make sure that companies have incentives to provide internet access in regions that would not be very profitable. So in order to explore regions that are profitable, they should also do something in relation to the regions that are not. So this is a policy concern and, and a way to address it. But we are also working with community internet providers. Uh, so we are making sure that regulations are adopted that allow the functioning of this type of providers. And we actually go to distant and vulnerable poor communities and uh, organize workshops so that they can organize their own community providers and uh, and share the, the access to the internet and that would be economically viable for them. Uh, do you do anything about countries where internet is non-existent or very closed like uh, China, North Korea, Iran? No, at this point, like we do work in, in, in Iran, yes, we work with bloggers. So we have uh, a different uh, types of actions supporting the work of the bloggers that are there, but it's not really in terms of access. It, it's not infrastructure, it's more like uh, ensuring that there's no censorship or there's a way out or a way around censorship. So you also develop uh, software tools, applications, um, guides for, for people, how to use, how to circumvent um, censorship? Yeah, we do a little bit of, uh, we prepare guides, different types of toolkits. We are now working a little on digital security, information security, especially to uh, human rights organizations, but we are not technical organizations. So most of our work is directed to policy, litigation, and other types of legal work and campaigning. Let's talk about specific problems that are unique or somewhat unique to the digital world. Um, surveillance, mm -hmm. for example. Yes. Well, again, so you can see how surveillance is impacting the traditional work that we used to do. We always worked in the protection of demonstrators, so people that go and protest in the streets. And more and more, in many regions of the world where we work, we started to receive cases of protesters that were being subject to surveillance. So suddenly this is a new topic and we need to understand all the technology behind it and, and follow all the bills actually that are trying to regulate and legitimize this practice. We actually heard about a Chinese face recognition software that found a person within a crowd of 50,000 people. In the past, if you took part in a demonstration, you could exercise your right to express your voice while at the same time keeping anonymous, in a sense, if you were not arrested or um, something like that. And today, if you take part in the demonstration, you could probably, and you probably are being identified 
Exactly. And, and actually, we have news, for example, in Brazil that they were creating a database of protesters. So you are actually profiling people that are just expressing their rights, their, their visions, and they are exercising their civil liberties, right? So why should they be profiled? Why, why should people track a record of them? Aside from putting on masks, how do people um, deal with this new problem? Mm, um, we have been discussing a lot uh, how to avoid, and in addition to masks, how um, you could try to avoid cameras or use other features that are less cover-up than masks, but that would make uh, this kind of uh, identification difficult. But of course, we do uh, a lot of policy advocacy work and legal work trying to convince authorities and the judiciary that these practices are illegal. Another issue you deal with is content moderation and censorship regulation. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a big issue. Actually, we have a number of different sub teams under, under content moderation because before we used to say that there should be no content regulation for the media. Of course, we always accepted that there would be abuses, but abuses should be a matter of um, journalistic ethics or self-regulation and only a very handful, a very small handful of topics should be really um, restricted, uh, really prohibited, like hate speech, uh, like um, speech that is um, somehow offending the rights of uh, children. Um, so that was the previous idea with legacy media. Nowadays, with the internet, things have become much more complex. So you have issues like the right to be forgotten. It's very trend topic nowadays, uh, the idea of fake news. And we have been discussing a lot the responsibility of intermediaries, the responsibility of uh, internet providers on in relation to this offensive and, 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 and illegal or, um, well, problematic content that is circulating online. What should they do? What should these intermediaries do? So intermediaries like uh, Facebook, for example. Exactly. In your organization's opinion, should they censor and fight fake news and propaganda or should they leave it for the uh, crowds or anything in the in between? Yeah, we are. I think it's this is something new for all of us. Um, so we do see the risk of having the state regulating that issue. Um, so we don't think that uh, uh, legal um, statutory regulations by the state would be the best way to go. But um, self, pure self-regulatory schemes could also be a problem because then we would be saying that these platforms would be the owners of truth, deciding what is true, what is not, what content is legitimate, what content is not legitimate. So we actually propose something of a mixed model of uh um, self-regulation, but that is open to the participation of other stakeholders. So civil society and members of different types of views should be present, uh, taking part of the regulatory schemes. But um, just a final point is that actually platforms should not be the owners of truth and they should be held accountable because at this point in time, due to the use of algorithms and other practices, we do know that they are not just a means for imparting information that is prepared or done by others. They actually have some kind of editorial powers over the content. So, so what we call the algorithm. Mm, it's like uh, the rules on how information is circulated and how specific audiences receive 
specific information that are relevant according to the platforms uh, to their own lives. So in your uh, perception, Facebook is not a technology company, it's a media company. Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed company, but it, it has a lot of a media company in it for sure. So we should explore this other side. I think it's an easy way out if they say that they, oh, we are only a technology company. We don't really deal with the content, but they actually, they, they do. So Oppressing regimes and others um, target journalists. You're uh, dealing with a specific uh, aspect of it, which is uh, gender-based violence against uh, female journalists. Yes, yes. Um, we do monitor cases and we provide support to journalists that are facing intimidation or violence in different parts of the world. But in some parts, we started to realize that uh, the number of cases of violence was not that expressive in relation to women journalists, but then they were reporting a lot of intimidation and gender-based uh, violence, gender-based intimidation. So uh, when they were threatened, when they were intimidated, people were using gender-specific uh, content to affect them. When they intimidate a man, they would talk about um, passing through the radio and throwing something to the radio. Uh, but when they were talking about women, they would mention their families, that they would go to their houses and mess through their personal items, uh, or they would wait for the kids out of school, or they would be threatened with rape. So it's it's a sexual content all the way uh, and much different from the type of intimidation that the men were suffering. Everything that is related to their private lives becomes so relevant when they are women. And, and we monitored some cases and we really could see the difference. So that's why we say that it's a very specific violence Gender-based violence against women journalists is a very specific phenomenon and we are trying to understand how it happens and how we can deal and help these women to protect themselves. Right? In your point of view, did technology make it easier or harder for people to get their human rights? And did it make it easier or harder for regimes to hurt those rights? Both. Both. It's uh, for sure. I think uh, in principle it had enormous potential and it still has but we still have the same regimes and we still have the same social problems we always had so we're just transferring some of these to the internet so although it is something that had enormous potential and we saw it as a critical way to democratize access to communications um, unfortunately uh, we have been transferring some thing some of the violations that were taking place offline uh, we now see online so the fight continues. <laughs> there are also global actors in the digital rights arena. If your government's disrespecting or flat-out breaching your privacy, there's a global ombudsman of sorts. But for him to officially review it, your government must officially invite him over. He prefers to work with cooperative states behind the scenes. But if that doesn't work, he will go public and use public pressure to make a change. I'm Joe Kanatachi. I'm the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Privacy. I'm also the co-director of STEP, that's the Security, Technology and E-Privacy Research Group at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And I'm also the um, head of the Department of Information Policy and Governance at the University of Malta. So tell us about your job at the UN. What does that entail? Um, at the UN, my job is to promote privacy around the world as a fundamental and universal human right. I also receive complaints from individuals in various countries who may 
wish to uh, lodge a complaint about themselves or the way that the status of privacy is in a particular case, any infringements on privacy, where they feel that their privacy is being infringed upon by the government, by the state, by security forces, by the police, by intelligence services. I also carry out um, country visits, official country visits, where I go to a country and engage with the government, but with also with other stakeholders, corporations, civil society, in order to try and find out how privacy, especially in the digital age, is being impacted by the use of technologies by the government, by law enforcement, by intelligence services, and of course, increasingly by companies. And so is your mandate also uh, regarding companies, global companies that uh, yes. work in one state and, and have their offices in another and right. the information is stored in the third place? Yes. yes. Uh, and what uh, power do you have over them? None. 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 My, my power as such is limited to what we can call the politics of persuasion, right? If I can persuade them through the soundness of my arguments and through the weight of public opinion, that what they're doing is really dumb, um, which is in many cases, sometimes you can do that, uh, and sometimes it's easier to do that, but sometimes it's less easy. Uh, in fact, sometimes what you do is when you're dealing with governments as opposed to with companies, I mean, companies do operate, especially the large companies, the so-called GAFAM, um, do operate across borders and keep data across borders, etc. But you find many governments who do that, and you find governments who are interested in accessing that data, sometimes legitimately, sometimes illegally. So it's not only the companies, but it's also the governments who are after the data and the individuals. Let's not forget that some individuals, especially crooked individuals and organized crime, are also after that data. Just to uh, uh, clarify, GFAM is Google, Facebook, Google, Amazon. Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Amazon, and Microsoft. Do you use the public and the public's uh, power, pressure, and political power to uh, enhance privacy in uh, the different states? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends very much on circumstances. My job, as I see it, is primarily that of the critical friend, right? So my first task is to pull governments to one side and after investigating things in a fair and objective manner, point out to the governments that what they're doing is not necessarily a good idea. Yes, we can learn from governments that if they're putting in good practices, that's fine. We learn about them, we borrow them, and we tell others about it. But if what they're doing is a bad practice, then we have to point out that what they're doing is bad practice. I find that as the critical friend, a lot of my work is best done behind closed doors, behind the scene. Because if, um, you know, the last thing you want to do is humiliate someone, right? Um, if you give people a public telling off, that's not necessarily going to be productive. It could be counterproductive. So my preferred approach is to meet the government officials behind the scenes, explain my point of view, explain the fact that they may be contravening or otherwise infringing on the right to privacy, and then trying to persuade them to adopt more privacy-friendly measures. In some cases, that works. Um, but in some cases, it doesn't. And in some cases, it patently won't. 
So what it patently won't, well, you see that the government uh, is not going to um, respect the right to privacy and has no intention to, and has no intention actually of going through a process of sincere consultation, um, and genuine consultation, then in those cases, um, I would actually launch a much more public campaign in order to swing the public ground, in order to try and get uh, public pressure to help me persuade the government that this is not a good idea. And do you find that uh, members of the public know and uh, utilize your position in order to try and fix their countries or their or the companies that they... Uh... Yes, too much and not enough. Let's start with the yes and the too much. Um, I am alone, a volunteer who depends very much on other volunteers to help. I don't have any armies at my disposal and no huge budgets either. That being said, I receive a lot of requests, sometimes on a daily basis, for advice, for assistance, even just for going to a country. Even if they pay for you to go, I mean, just pay your expenses, not pay your fees, um, it's still time, it's still effort, and there's only one of me. So um, if you receive three to five letters a week, never mind three to five letters a day sometimes, that's a lot even just to answer, let alone to go and actually do something. Um, so that's why for one person it may be too much. Um, that being said, when you put it, contextualize it in the scale of what needs to be done, it's too little. I don't think that enough is known about privacy. I don't think that um, people either know enough, I won't say care enough, they actually, many people seem to care. But one of the funny things about privacy is that People tell you that they care and they love it, and then they behave in a completely different way and go and post their pictures and say things about themselves and others on social media in a way which may say, well, this doesn't exactly, um, it, this isn't exactly consistent with the behavior of somebody who really likes privacy. So I guess that's why my, my answer was, you know, uh, not necessarily ambiguous, but why I said, yes, too much and too little. Do you think that it is possible to live in a modern society and protect your privacy? I'm uh, speaking not of just of uh, social networks uh, where you divulge information about yourself, but uh, even having a cell phone uh, makes you a target of, of surveillance, where you are, what you're sending, who you're talking to. And living without a cell phone is quite hard in the modern world. It's hard to get along. It's hard to get a job. It's hard to do your job. It's hard to keep in touch with friends if you don't have a cellular phone. And that's just one example. I think the answer to your question is yes. You can maintain a degree of privacy. I choose my words carefully, a degree of privacy um, by being well acquainted with the technology and knowing how, when, where, and why to stop. So you can, um, you don't need to be on social media in order to be happy, I think. Um, for those people who it makes them happy, that's fine. Go ahead, do it. But be conscious of what you're doing and use all the measures at your disposal, including the ones put in and forced on the service providers by law to minimize your privacy exposure. So your privacy exposure it can be 
reduced or increased in many ways by the settings that you have on your phone, by the settings you have on your browsers, by the settings you have on your uh, computer. Learn about those settings and learn how to use them. That's the first. The second thing is, yes, you can carry a mobile phone about, which kind of puts you in a situation which is inferior to Winston Smith's in 1984, because he used to go, if you remember in that novel, in Orwell's 1984, he used to go in the countryside because there were no screens on the trees. Today, apart from the fact that you find CCTV anywhere, the very fact that you carry your mobile phone with you um, exposes you to the risk of that being hacked, to your image and voice being captured even against your own will. Um, so the phone, the mobile phone, the smartphone presents particular challenges. That being said, you know, what can one say? Buy a mobile phone where you can get at the battery without breaking the phone and remove the battery if you're really keen to have privacy at any moment in time. And are you on social media? No. No. I'm not on Facebook. Um, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not condemning people who use Facebook, but I seem to have gone life uh, to life with real friends. And uh, uh, I'm not saying the ones on Facebook are not necessarily real friends, but I think friends can sometimes be a bit of a misnomer, right? Um, and uh, um, say, I mean, I've just gone through life through in a traditional way. I see the value of social media for some people, not for others. My own personal choice has been one. I'm somebody who values my privacy. I'm not very keen to give data to other people. Uh, data which infringes my privacy um, and clearly by using any form of app, not on, only social media, by using any form of app on your phone, if it's a free app then the chances are that it's collecting data about you and giving that data to somebody else. Do you think it's possible uh, rather than refraining from using technology uh, to uh, force the companies to avoid uh, this uh, massive um, surveillance that they are doing on, on the users? Well, I'm having discussions with the companies and specifically about their business models because it's the business model that determines. So you did, first you asked me, do I use social media? And I said, no. But you didn't ask me, do you use messaging services? Of course I do. But I use messaging services, which are um, ones which do not collect data about me and ones which, are, uh, which come with military-grade encryption. Now, that means, am I using a smartphone? Yes. Um, but am I using a smartphone in a way which permits people to gather too much data about me in a disproportionate manner? No, that's not the way I'm using my smartphone. And I'm using apps because they do exist, which are privacy-conscious. So if you're interested in privacy, you can go out and find the apps which do it. Um, so I'm not saying don't use the technology. I'm just using the technology which now, especially in Europe by law, must be privacy-friendly and privacy by design. You uh, deal with many different countries, and your view uh, on this uh, must be very interesting. Uh, there are cultural differences in privacy. In Israel, you can ask somebody how much they make or uh, where their parents came from. In the United States, not as much. How do you deal with those differences when you speak to different governments and different entities? Well, it's a sticky problem in the sense that um, 
the way I look at it, without trivializing it, I hope, is that in this sense, privacy is a bit like Coke, like Coca-Cola, not cocaine. Um, I don't know whether you've noticed, but when you travel around the world, Coke doesn't taste the same. It's got the same ingredients, more or less, but it doesn't really the same thing. Sometimes it's sweeter, sometimes it's less sweet. And what I'm suggesting is that to a certain extent, privacy could be the same way. You have the same core ingredients, but they're mixed in a different way, in different proportions. Um, so some things which are culturally more acceptable from a privacy point of view in Israel would be considered to be, yes, more privacy intrusive in the United States. But that comes, I suspect, with the territory, and you just have to make sure that you can understand the cultures properly. I don't think that the fact that privacy may have a different flavor in some countries, that doesn't mean it's not a universal fundamental right. It's a fundamental human right everywhere, but it's expressed in different ways in some countries as well. How long have you been in this uh, position? Um, the post of Special Rapporteur on Privacy was first created after the Snowden revelations in 2015, and I was the first person nominated for a three-year term, and my three-year term has just been renewed, so I will be doing the maximum of two terms until August of 2021. I want to take one very prominent example, the Adhar, the uh, biometric ID in India, being the biggest democracy in the world and having this biometric database and biometric um, method of identification, do you think this is a good thing uh, in the sense of taking care of the uh, of society of people who weren't listed before fighting identity theft, etc.? Or do you think it's a very dangerous precedent? Well, I, I think that... Um, you ask the question in the right country. Israel is one of those countries which has legislated specifically about biometrics. Israel is probably running fast ahead in, in the competition of a competition that we're for having the strictest rules about biometrics. And Israeli law contains a number of safeguards. And I'm bringing up Israel as a an example before I answer your question about India directly, by saying that you have to ask yourself the question, is the Indian law providing safeguards, if any, about the Indian system, different to the Israeli? Is it less strict or more strict? Can Israeli law be scaled up to prove as useful to India as the Israeli law has proved in Israeli society. What I think you'll find is that the Indian situation, like those in so many other countries, is still work in progress. You, yes, have had uh, an attempt to collect and treat biometric data from what is basically the world's largest democracy. At the same time, you have a vibrant discussion going on in India, including the case decided in August of last year, which had direct implications on the way that privacy may be understood in India. So I think that perhaps if you ask me that question in two to five years' time, I'd be able to give you a much more accurate answer, not least because the whole 
phase of implementation and the safeguards, both legal and technical, but remember, they have to be both, both legal and technical, are still very much working for us. Um, are you worried about the collaboration between media and tech companies and law enforcement and, and armies, on the other hand, uh, where the companies provide those uh, entities with very strong technologies, new technologies that enable them to do things that they've never been able to do before on a large scale? I'm talking about surveillance, face recognition, uh, pre-criming, etc. Does that worry you? I'm concerned. And the way that I've handled this concern is two major streams of action. The first is by creating IIOF, and that's the International Intelligence Oversight Forum. In other words, what I've tried to do is create a forum, place where um, the intelligence oversight agencies uh, of various countries can get together with myself and um, discuss best practices. So in that way, we can immediately see what safeguards we put in. The second thing I have continued work, which I had started off before the UN Special Rapporteur's post was ever created. Way back in 2014, we had started a EU-supported research project called Mapping, which deals with how the European Union should engage with the rest of the world when it comes to internet governance, privacy, and intellectual property. And within the context of that project, we have developed more laterally, also conjointly with the UN Special Rapporteur on Privacy's mandate. In that project, we've developed a legal instrument, a draft legal instrument dealing with surveillance, which has been developed over two years of consultations with secret services, law enforcement, Interpol, the police, etc. And um, hopefully, as a result from that, we now have a working paper which, although not legally binding, can be used by member states to der- derive inspiration from and hopefully start working towards an international consensus. At this moment in time, while there are some views as to which law applies where on the internet, the cold truth is that there are certain subjects which are still problematic. I mean, jurisdiction on the internet is still uh, hugely problematic. So what do you do then? And the only thing which you can do to settle things like that is through international agreement. And international agreement can only arrive in one way, and that's not in a bilateral way, it's in a multilateral way, a multilateral convention, a multilateral treaty, which would establish, which would permit the states to establish, to agree common values, and then agree common rules which reflect those common values as to how we answer the question, what is appropriate state behavior on the internet? Once we ask that question, we come up with the answer, then that answer must be the subject of an agreed set of rules. You said you were um, a friendly advisor? Yeah, I would say the critical friend. Critical friend, but... The friend who is allowed to tell you that you have words on your nose. And do countries uh, treat you like this, like a critical friend, or do some of them see you as a pain in the ass? Both. 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 You know, you have some who treat me as a critical friend and some which would rather not have me around. It's par for the course, comes with the territory. I'm not worried about that. 
I will continue to be uh, the critical friend. Uh, have you visited the really privacy problematic states? I would say, uh, um, um, in an understatement, Iran, North Korea, um, <clears throat> China, maybe even Turkey. No, not yet. Um, the reason being quite simple. While I am completely independent and the way I operate and my choice of countries, I actually need the invitation of a state in order to go. I just can't turn up on the border and knock on the door and say, I'd like to carry out an official country visit. No, that country visit must be first um, approved by the state. And what tools do you have to work with countries which do not invite you? Very little. I mean, I can try to meet them, meet them behind the scenes, but, you know, you can take the horse to the water, but you can't make a drink. Now, has Israel invited you? At this moment in time, I have not sought an official invitation from the Israeli government, but should the Israeli government invite me, I would be very happy to come. Um, so I can't say that the Israeli government has not invited me either. Normally what happens in these cases is that one would speak informally with the Israeli government's authorities and see if they're interested in extending an invitation. And up to now, uh, while I'm very happy to be in Israel and very happy to be here on a private visit, which is more linked to my responsibilities as a university professor and researcher, um, I'm also um, very interested in building bridges for the future. So if and when Israel would formally invite me, I would be very happy to come. In a bird's eye view, do you think the state of privacy in the world is getting better or worse? Well, I don't want to sound too much like a lawyer and say yes or no, but it's getting both. Um, it's getting better because at no time in history have people talked about privacy more, and at no time in history have people designed and invoked and implemented more laws about privacy. So privacy is getting better, it's getting stronger, conceptually, legally, and um, it's getting worse because um, technology races on and doesn't wait for the lawyers to catch up. So um, lawyers and techies must be vigilant and hardworking and rigorous in the way that they study the impact that um, privacy or technologies have upon privacy and then try to find the right ways to build in the safeguards, which would safeguard people's privacy in the face of ever more complex and ubiquitous technologies. So this is uh, mainly, you think, a non-governmental, non-state effort? No, that's not what I'm saying. There are lawyers inside governments and techies inside governments. Okay. They have responsibilities too. And I find that many of them discharge those responsibilities in a very conscientious manner. In fact, what I try to do in every country I go to, I try to learn from those government officials to see if they have any good practices to come on, to pass on. And if they're keen, I can also give them, pass on some good practices I brought from other countries. But also, every government has an element of bad practice. Um, so I'm also able to go from one country to another saying, don't do this, they've tried this here, it's an absolutely bad idea. Uh, I know you said you uh, like to work behind the scenes, but what do you think of uh, Israel's state uh, in uh, privacy? Israel has actually um, 
been one of the foremost states in establishing privacy at the constitutional level. Um, Israel has a very uh, strong uh, and vibrant democratic discussion about many matters related to privacy. Israel's laws in some areas, for example, those in the case of biometrics, are amongst the strictest in the world and are quite vigorously applied. So it's not as if Israel is the biggest backwater on the planet when it comes to privacy. Can Israel improve things? I'm sure it can in some areas. Um, are there elements of Israeli policy which lead to greater or lesser amounts of surveillance, etc., etc.? Do those need to be looked at most closely? Possibly, yes. But, you know, privacy around the world is very much work in progress. Nobody has got it exactly and absolutely right. So I would have been very surprised that Israel got it absolutely right. But I would in no way, you know, when I say this informally at this manner, because I haven't carried out a formal country visit, but I don't think that uh, insofar as privacy is concerned, um, Israel would be amongst the biggest offenders. It would actually, I think, in some areas, be able to show examples of good practice. Um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the discussion about Israel and its place in the world focuses a lot on other subjects, which are important. But which uh, also have privacy implications. Which also have privacy implications. Um, but without expressing myself on those issues, I would say that I look forward to Israeli society as well as the Israeli authorities to working with me to try to improve the state of privacy in Israel and in other territories where um, Israel may be retaining uh, data about. I would like to thank our guests. Dr. Efrat Daskal. You're very welcome. Thank you. Paula Martins. Thank you so much. It was a privilege, a great opportunity to be here discussing these ideas with you. And Professor Joe Kanatachi. You're welcome. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Podcastico for the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Cybersecurity Research Center 2018. More episodes are available on the center's site, csrcl.huji.ac.il. I'm Ido Kainan, and see you in cyberspace.